Hi, my name is Jana Metzger. Welcome to the Gospel House. Our mission here at the Gospel House is to show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. That in the gospel, we can find all of our deepest needs met as the entire church responds to and applies the implications of the gospel. We would love to show it with you. Check out our website, www.thegospel.house, where you can learn more about us, find out how to connect with us, ask questions, see when and where our next meeting is, and give to help advance the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Today we officially start the implications part of the implication sermon series. We started the sermon series last week, but before we really got going on any of this, we wanted to lay a firm foundation on what we are calling the gospel, what the gospel is. So the whole premise of this sermon series is that as a disciple of Jesus Christ, my goal, my highest goal, is to apply the implications of the gospel to every facet of my life. Everything that I do is less about what would Jesus do. While that's not a bad question to ask, it's not that as much as it's looking at what did Jesus do? What does the gospel say Jesus already did, right? Jesus hanging on the cross says it is finished, right? So what does the gospel say Jesus did? And then based on what Jesus did, how does that change how I live my life? What are the implications of that? When I give to the church, what does the gospel say? How am I living out the implications based on how I give? And not just to the church. When I'm tipping my DoorDash driver, what's the gospel say? Does the gospel say, well, he didn't get here in 20 minutes. I'm taking money away. That's not what Jesus did, is it? Right? Did Jesus give you 20%? Did Jesus give you 10%? And was it based on your performance? Jesus gave 100%, even though my performance stinks. If I was a DoorDash driver delivering to Jesus, I would have been like three years late with his food. I'd hand him the bag of French fries, and there'd be mold growing on it and all that gross stuff, right? And he still gave me 100%. Everything he had, he poured out. But that's what we want to do with all of life. We want to look at what did Jesus do, and how does that prompt me to act. So today we're going to dive in and we're actually going to kick off the sermon series where we left with Paul. We left on 1 Corinthians 15 and so we're going to pick up in 2 Corinthians. And I'm going to be real honest, I had a really difficult time starting this as I was getting ready to do this sermon. I struggled just to get going and part of it is we're going to do it a little different. We're going to look at, instead of looking in depth at like one chapter at a time, we're going to look at chunks of chapters that Paul writes. I have never really heard a sermon preached through 2 Corinthians, um, so this is going to be exciting um, going through this. But one of the things that's really difficult to do is, is section this off, because Paul weaves this together so well, and I'm so glad that he does. Because while it's really difficult to make a sermon out of it because I can't just clean slice chunks and put chunks out there. I've got to kind of jump around. It also makes it incredibly difficult to take Paul's writing out of context, which Christians are so good at, aren't they? Cherry picking the good parts and leaving the stuff we don't like. And this first part, the first two chapters of 2 Corinthians are a great example Paul says, he gives an instruction and tells the church in Corinth, hey, look at this, here's a principle, and then look at my life. This is how I walked it out. 
This is how I'm currently walking it out. And now look at your church. This is how I want you to walk it out. So as we go through this, you're going to notice we're going to jump around a little bit. It's going to go from you know, first Cor- or 2 Corinthians 1 to 2 Corinthians 2, back to 2 Corinthians 1. But part of that reasoning is Paul keeps doing this. He keeps using that format of saying, here's a principle. You need to live it. Here's how I live it in my life. Here's how you can apply it to your church, showing us how we can walk out the implications of the gospel, right? So we ready? Everybody got their seatbelts on? All right, here you go. You're going to get car sick. Today, we are going to talk about gospel correction. That just sounds like fun, doesn't it? Oh, boy, just what everybody wants to talk about. Gospel correction. But here's the thing. If we are living out the implications of the gospel, this has to be foundational. This has to be step one in walking out the gospel. We have to be able to receive, and we have to be able to give gospel correction. So we're going to look at three things. First, we're going to look at the need for correction. Second, we're going to look at the way of correction. And then third, we're going to look at the promise of correction. So first, the need for correction. This is non-negotiable in the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? We are all sinners, That's where the gospel starts. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. And as a sinner, we need corrected. Correct? Yes. So even after we have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, there is still a progressive process that happens in the life of a believer where as I walk with Jesus, as I experience Jesus, the Holy Spirit starts to make me look more and more like him every day. But guess what? If the Holy Spirit says, hey, Jeremy, you're doing this, and you need to throw that in the trash. Jeremy, you need to stop doing this. And I choose to not stop doing that. I choose to say, hmm, the Holy Spirit's correcting me, but I'm not going to listen to that. God, you know what? Doggone it. I kind of like that sin. (gasps) Gasp. Christians don't say that. Don't they, though? We may not say it exactly like that, but that's how we live. God, I'm comfortable in that sin. God, I don't want to let that go. And if I don't recognize my need for correction, even as a Christ follower that there are still things the Holy Spirit is working on me, that there's still junk that he's knocking off of me. If I don't recognize that and I choose not to heed his advice, then I'm not going to be made more like Jesus. My growth stops. And anybody who's ever had a little plant, right, what happens when the plant stops growing? It starts dying. And that's exactly what happens in the life of a believer. When we stop that process that the Holy Spirit has us on and we stop growing more like Jesus, we start going the other way. Even if we think, well, I'm just standing still. There's no such thing. It's forward or backwards. And if you're not growing more like Jesus, you're going the other way. So we need correction. Romans 3.23 tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
this means that no one is above reproach. If you are sitting in these comfortable chairs and you are thinking, I'm above reproach, you are wrong. You are failing at a bedrock principle of the gospel. You are not above reproach. And here's something even more dangerous in the life of a Christian. If you're looking at someone else and saying they're above reproach, look at Pastor Jeremy up there. He gets to stand behind this nice little table that the hecklingers made, and he's got it all together, and he knows what he's doing. I bet he's above reproach. Stop it. I'm not. The Holy Spirit corrects me every day. I actually have a principle in my walk with Jesus. When I wake up early in the morning and I go to my word, I get a little worried if I go more than two days without the Holy Spirit correcting me on something. That's just me. Okay? Now, I'm not saying that's, that's a, you know, stamp it like, okay, Jeremy said two days, so I got to set my alarm. It's been two days. Warning. That's not what I'm saying. Okay? But, guys, the Holy Spirit corrects me on stuff all the time. All the time. He is always making me look more like Jesus, and he's always showing me how much further I have to go. Actually, the more mature in the faith I become, the more I realize I still got miles to go. I'm not even close. It actually feels like I'm going backwards, right? Because, and it's, not, it's not because I am. I'm still running after Jesus, but as you get closer to God, you realize how holy he is. You realize that his standard is so perfect. And it's like, man, Holy Spirit, I need you. I need you. I need you to get me there because I am a long way off. So don't put somebody else on that pedestal. It's against the gospel principle. You're not living out an implication of the gospel if you say, oh, well, so-and-so, I don't, I don't think he ever makes mistakes. The Bible says otherwise, right? Jesus is the only one. We've actually, we, we hammer this in with our kids, right? You know, I always tell them, you know, Promise has really started to drill me on it lately, our youngest. She's y youngest daughter, not our youngest. Gideon's the youngest now. But she's really started to drill me on it. She'll, act, she'll tell Jana. Jana will come in the room and she'll say, Mom, Dad makes mistakes, but I have a father who doesn't make mistakes. He's God. Theologically, that's correct, promise. You don't have to rub it in my face, though. I would really appreciate that. But we all need correction. Paul actually says this in 1 Corinthians 10. I told you we're jumping all over the place. He says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Uh, Proverbs tells us that pride comes before a fall, right? This is a spiritual principle. It does not just have to do with armies and physical things. Ladies and gentlemen, when you get to that point where you think you don't need the Holy Spirit anymore, mm -hmm. how much do I say? Too many Christians think that the Holy Spirit is our spiritual training wheels. That we get to an age spiritually where we say to God, God, I'm ready. Take, this tra take the training wheels off. I'm ready to do this on my own. And we have Christians being reproduced over and over and over again who view the Holy Spirit as training wheels. Take him off, Lord. Take him off. I don't need him. I know what I'm doing. Guys, if, if you could achieve the law on your own, there's no reason for the gospel. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ never had to happen if you could get there on your own. Even with coaching, mentoring, the Holy Spirit is not a mentor. You're not supposed to graduate from him. He's not training wheels. The Holy Spirit is the Christian's oxygen. We need him to live. We need him to breathe. That is how dependent we must be on him. But we've got to set aside this idea that he is our training wheels. So many, oftentimes good men of God, have completely fallen pretending that they don't need the Holy Spirit anymore. That he's their training wheels. And so they take him off. And you know what happens? Like Paul says, they think they're standing. And they fall. Every time. Because God didn't send the Holy Spirit to be our training wheels. He didn't send the Holy Spirit to be taken off of our spiritual walk. He sent the Holy Spirit to be the very power of God, the lifeblood that we walk in every single day. Paul gives us an example of this in his own suffering. 2 Corinthians 1, 8-11 to says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that, so that, we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are being discipled by the church, what is the church discipling you to do? To depend upon yourself or to depend upon God? Because a gospel church will always disciple you to depend upon God. We love practical sermons, right? Okay, like, but, but, but practically, how do I do that? How do I do this? The gospel throws practical out the window and says, walk in the Spirit. It's not that it's impractical, right? But it's saying, trust in God. But unfortunately, that doesn't make very good discipling books, right? If I'm writing a discipling book and I put in it, walk in the Spirit. Listen to God. Do what He says the end. I'm not going to sell very many of those books, right? But we live in this weird age where the church is trying to get us to stay dependent upon the church, right? I write these books and I get people coming back for my discipling curriculum or whatever we want to call it because it keeps people dependent on me. We're not pushing people to be dependent on the Spirit, and we need to. That's why the church exists, to spur one another on, to continue to walk in dependence of the Holy Spirit. Paul continues, who delivered us, this is God, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope. What's your hope set on? Him. And he will yet deliver us. You also joining in helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. We kind of throw out with this, with this example Paul gives us, we throw out that Christian rumor, the little thing that gets posted on social media all the time, God will never give you more than you can handle. Paul says, well, that's not my experience, right? 
God does give us more than we can handle. And listen to this. The greatest blessing that God could ever give you is to give you more than you can handle so that you learn it's not you, it's him. The greatest blessing, this is not preached today, people. The greatest blessing you can receive is that God would strip everything away to show you that he is enough. That's the blessed life. Read through the Beatitudes, the people that Jesus calls blessed, right? It's not the people who have it all. It's the people who have everything taken away because they realize God is all I need. If I have him, I have it all. If I have him, he is more than enough. That is blessing. We've got to get our definition of this right. In this passage, Paul gives us an incredible glimpse into how to handle suffering. Right? And if we, if we take it at surface value, that's great. We learn how to handle suffering according to the gospel. But we've got to step back. You know, the Bible is a book. And it's so much more than just a book. But lots of times, Christians get in this weird position where we forget that it's also a book. <laughs> right? We hyper-spiritualize it to where we don't apply the principles of reading a book. When you read a book or any other kind of literature, you always look at it and you say, okay, why is so-and-so writing this, right? You guys remember how much you hated English class? I used to be an English teacher, so I know how much you hated English class because I had 50 students who hated English class. But we go through those questions. Why is Paul writing this? To whom is Paul writing, right? But then we get to the Bible, and it's like, ah, who cares? What's it mean for me? Stop, right? Why is Paul writing this? Why does Paul open the book of 2 Corinthians with suffering? Why? And then why, in, the 2, Corinthians, or in 2 Corinthians 2, why does he jump into this correction? And it's because those two things are intimately related. Suffering and correction. Suffering is so often the way that God uses to correct us. Paul's getting ready to drop the hammer on the church in Corinth. Again, he did it in 1 Corinthians, and now he's got to do it again in 2 Corinthians. You know, we get a lot of people who complain about the state of the church. Oh man, the church is in dire straits. We're collapsing. Everything's falling apart. You forget the whole reason that these, all of these epistles, these letters are written to the churches because they didn't have it together either, right? Paul is saying to the church in Corinth, guys, you still aren't living out the implications of the gospel. And we've got to get that right. He's saying correction for the church is unavoidable. He's saying, we don't like this, suffering for the church is unavoidable. But the true gospel says that suffering can be the greatest comfort. Like the passage that Miss Janet read for us today. As long as suffering makes us look more like Jesus, it is the greatest comfort we can possibly have. And he connects these dots as he jumps in to the second chapter of 2 Corinthians. He gives the, the church in Corinth, he gives them two reasons that he's writing this to them. 
2 Corinthians 2, verse 5, and 2 Corinthians 2, verse 9. He says, But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, to all of you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has this great book. Maybe you've heard of it. I've referenced it a few times. Life Together. It's a fantastic book. But in that book, he points out something that we rarely get today. There is no such thing as a private sin. We don't get that today. We don't understand that. But this is exactly what Paul is saying here. Every single sin is a corporate sin. Every sin is a sin against the body of Christ. We, we get this idea that, you know, we can cover it up. What I look on, on my phone screen late at night, nobody else sees it, so it's a private sin. There's no such thing. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, ladies and gentlemen, look, I don't have sorrow about what's going on. But the sorrow is on all of you. Because when you commit these sins, when you refuse to walk according to the implications of the gospel, you are holding your church back. Think about that the next time you're ready to cuss somebody out on the highway or you know whatever your vice is. There is no such thing as a private sin. Every sin is a sin against the body. And when you sin, you've got to think to yourself, guys, let this weight hang in there. Is this worth holding the gospel house back? Is this worth holding the uppercase C church in Northwest Ohio back? Because if we all let it go, if we all let those sins go, man, alive, the enemy doesn't want to see that. Because we will cause such change. We will cause such movement for the kingdom of God. But we hold on to these things because we refuse to live out the implications of the gospel. He then tells the church in verse 9, For to this end also I wrote, so that you, I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. This is made a little clearer uh, in the book of Hebrews. This has always kind of perplexed me a little bit. It's one of those passages like, wait, what? Hebrews uh, 5, verses 8 and 9, talking about Jesus, it says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. I've always struggled with this a little bit because, you know, Jesus was perfect, right? That's, that's what we're told in Sunday school over and over and over again. He was a perfect man. So wait, why did he need to learn obedience? right? But here's the thing, and, and it teaches us something extremely important about obedience. If God comes down here and he says, Jeremy, every Sunday from this day forth, I want you to drive to Cleveland, Ohio, and I want you to watch the Browns, and if you do so, I will make sure they win every game. That's going to be real hard for me to obey, right? I love the Browns. That's not hard to obey, right? Because I want to do it. If Jesus came here to this earth and God says, Jesus, go sit on a throne and rule over these unworthy subjects, no problem. Sure, I'll do it, right? But that's not what God says to Jesus. I love Tim Keller says this. It's so beautiful. He says that Jesus Christ is the only human being in the history of man 
to whom God said, Obey me, and I will crush you and send you to hell. And Jesus obeyed. Right? We don't learn obedience when everything is going right. We don't learn obedience when all the success is in the world. Right? Obedience is next to impossible to learn when everything in your life is going well. It is in suffering that we learn obedience. This is why the, these prosperity gospels, you know, this blessing, because honestly, it's even difficult to learn the correct kind of obedience if you get obedience because, like if God gives you a reward at the end, a lot of Christians will teach you, like, oh yeah, if, you know, whatever you lose, if you lost all that, God's going to give you back double in return. Then why are you obeying? Why are you walking through the suffering? Are you suffering for God? Or are you suffering to get stuff back? But so many times, the gospel pushes us into suffering so that we suffer for God. So that we are corrected and we learn to be obedient for God. Not for the stuff he gives us, but for him because he is worth it. Why did Jesus say, when God said, obey me and I'll crush you and send you to hell, why did Jesus say yes? Because Jesus knew that God was worth it. He knew his father, and he knew what his father's plans were. And he trusted that, and we have to do the same. Which leads us to how God teaches us. The way of correction. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 1.12, For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you. How does God correct us? He corrects us from a place of holiness, right? God is perfect. He corrects us from a place of holiness, he corrects us from a place of godly sincerity. He does not correct us according to fleshly wisdom, not by the wisdom of this world, but by his grace. We have far too many Christians today running around trying to correct people out of order. They aren't coming from a place of holiness. If we're going to correct somebody else, we've got to come to them the way God corrects us, right? The Holy Spirit is not going to lead you to correct someone any other way. So we've got to come from a place of holiness. But this rarely happens today. We rarely come from a place of holiness. Correction today most often comes from a place of self-righteousness, right? I want to be right. We really love it when we get to correct somebody who's done us wrong, right? Really get to stick the screws to them. We're not coming from a place of godly sincerity. There's nothing sincere about it. I just want to make the other person look like an idiot. And there is no grace given. But there's a ton of worldly advice in there. Positioning for power embarrassing for people, showing that, oh, I know all this stuff. I've got all this worldly wisdom. 
We mourn for our loss of power, so we correct. We want to prove that our political party is better, so we correct. We want the other person to pay, so we correct. And the Bible says that is not correction, living out the implications of the gospel. Paul says, I did it this way, y'all. I determined for my own sake that I would not come to you in sorrow again. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? This is the very thing I wrote to you, so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but you might know the love which I have especially for you. This doesn't mean that correction doesn't hurt, right? Is there anyone in here who wants to put up their hand and say, I love being corrected. I love it. Bring it on. Tell me all the stuff you hate about me. We don't like it, right? It doesn't feel good. But sorrow cannot be the motive because sorrow isn't God's motive. Right? You guys have heard me say that about the surgery, right? When you go in for surgery, the doctor's cutting stuff out of you, and it hurts, right? It hurts to have a chunk cut off of you. But when the doctor cuts you, he's not cutting you to hurt you, right? He's cutting to heal. And so when we correct others, when we cut others, we cut to heal. This is how God corrects us. He cuts us to heal us. And he does this because he wants to create joy. God doesn't want this shallow joy that comes from these prosperity gospels that say, oh, if you obey, you'll get a bunch of stuff from God. That's shallow joy. Because guess what happens when you obey and don't get stuff? Is there joy? No. There's, forget this. this. This isn't a God of love. I'm out, y'all. God knows what's going to bring us joy. And that's him, and only him. So he makes us look more like Jesus, because that is what's going to bring us joy. And guys, it hurts like crazy sometimes, doesn't it? When you're on one of the, in one of those valleys, and guys, the valleys make you look more like Jesus than the mountaintops, I promise you that. Not because God's messed up, but because our human nature's messed up, right? I would love to tell you I learned so much from mountaintop experiences where everything's going great. I don't learn anything. I learn stuff when I'm screwed up and in the middle of the desert, panting for water, right? That's where we learn. Sadly, in our current cultural moment, where we are as a society right now, sorrow is almost always the motive when we correct. Like we said, we want the other person to pay. We want them to hurt. We want our pound of flesh. And so we correct. The goal is to make them look foolish. So we correct. But again, that's not how Paul does it. That's not how the gospel says to do it. So what's Paul tell the church in Corinth? They've got a situation going on here in 2 Corinthians. He says, Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. 
Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Reaffirm your love for the ones you are correcting. I personally am not very good at this, right? I'm not a very, like, emotional person, so I struggle with this. But it's something that God is working in me, something he's, he's trying to make me better at, that I need to be corrected on, right? I need to reaffirm my love. This isn't talking about a compliment sandwich, right? Say two good things and then correct and then two more good things. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul is saying, in your correction, make sure they know you love them, which means you forgive. You forgive before you even go to them in correction. You make your mind up beforehand, I have already forgiven because Jesus has forgiven me. That's what the gospel says. Paul continues, But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. And that's the clincher here. Satan hates correction. Satan hates it when God corrects you. He hates it even more when you obey God's correction because he knows it's making you look more like Jesus. And he needs to foil that any chance he gets. Satan hates when you go to a brother or sister in love and correct them according to the gospel. And so he does everything he can to get you to do it wrong. He does everything he can to convince us Mm, if God's trying to correct you, it means he doesn't think you're beautiful just the way you are. We can laugh, but that, that's, that's, the, that's the current cultural thing, right? You're beautiful just the way you are. Stay that way. Jesus says, come as you are, but I love you too much to leave you like that. Come as you are, and I am going to make you look more like me. Because the end goal is to look like him, not to be beautiful just the way I am. But that's what Satan does. When you go correct a brother or sister, he loves it when you do it out of the Bible. He loves it when you do it incorrectly. Right? Well, you know, instead of, instead of going to, Caitlin sitting in the front, sorry, Caitlin. Instead of going straight to Caitlin and correcting her, I'm going to go to Jana. Wow, did you see what Caitlin did today? That's not biblical correction. That's not what the Bible says. And Satan loves it when we do it. And let's be honest. It's more difficult to do it biblically, right, than it is to do it the way of the world. We love Satan's schemes. You're not going to hear that in many churches on a Sunday morning, are you? <laughs> we shouldn't, but we do. Guys, if, if sin stunk, like, nobody would do it, right? <laughs> We'd all be peaches and roses. It's difficult because the flesh cries out for it. The flesh would so much rather go behind somebody's back and talk about them. It's a coward's way out. Because it's rough. It's, it's hard to have a hard conversation, right? Nobody likes to do it. But we have to. 
because we know what the enemy's schemes are. And we know the only way we can counter them is by doing it biblically. One of my favorite corrections we have in the Bible is actually in Galatians 2. Uh, Paul is he's telling this story about Peter. He's you know, saying Peter went to these Gentiles and you know, was hanging out with them and everything. And then all of a sudden these Jews show up and Peter pretends he doesn't even know the Gentiles. Right, because he doesn't want them to think like Peter's hanging out with Gentiles. Right, Peter's pride as a Jew gets in his way. Oh, good Jews don't hang out with Gentiles, so I'm going to pretend I don't know these guys. Right, and so Paul corrects him in front of everybody. Paul corrects him, and look at what Paul says. He says, "But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, who is Peter, in the presence of all." If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Some translations say, when I saw that they were not walking by the truth of the gospel, that they were not applying the implications of the gospel. Look at how Paul corrects. This is how we have to correct. He doesn't say, hey, Ten Commandment number six, you missed it right? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, hey, remember when the prophets said this? You need, he doesn't say that. He corrects him based on the gospel. Ladies and gentlemen, when Jesus Christ came, when he gave his life for our sins, when he was buried and resurrected, and on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell, everything was rewritten. Everything. It's not that the law doesn't exist anymore. The law is still there. You are still judged by it. But the ante is upped because the correction isn't the law anymore. The correction is not. And Jesus teaches this. This isn't, oh, let's, Pastor Jeremy's going rogue. Look out. Jesus teaches this, right? In the Beatitudes, when he's going through the Sermon on the Mount, it's not in the Beatitudes, it's after that, but in the Sermon on the Mount, as he's going through, what does Jesus say? It used to be that if you committed an adultery with a woman, you were guilty. But now I say to you, if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, it is the same thing. You are just as guilty. It used to be that if you murdered someone, you were guilty. But now I tell you, if you even have an ill thought of hatred towards your brother or sister, you are guilty. The gospel ups the ante. Feel impossible yet? It should because you can't do it on your own. You need the Holy Spirit to help you walk this out. You need the Holy Spirit to walk out the implications of this gospel because it takes the law and it shoots so much higher because it says, don't just not do bad things, but be holy. Be holy as I am holy. That's what the gospel says. That's the implication of the gospel. In fact, it's the promise. There are two promises that the gospel gives us on correction. Like we said at the very beginning, the first is, do you want to be a disciple of Jesus? then God promises you will be corrected. It's not optional. It's not just that it's required. 
It's that it's promised. The promise is there. And we said this at the beginning. If you could do it on your own, Jesus didn't need to come and die. And there's, there's this lie going around. All roads lead to heaven, right? Anybody can get there. You can get there however, however you feel like. Does that really sound like something that someone would come and die for? Not just someone, but God. God himself would come and die a horrific death to get us to the place of all roads lead to heaven. You don't have to acknowledge what he did for you or say thanks. Anybody can get there. The gospel says that we can't. We can't do any of this on our own. We so desperately need the Holy Spirit. And if we walk in the Spirit, he promises he will correct us. This isn't just New Testament. Proverbs, this comes from Proverbs, Hebrews 12, 6, we see it in the New Testament. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. And then Proverbs 3, 12 tells us, for whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. We love the idea. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God, right? And we love that. I run to the Father. I fall into grace. And then all of a sudden the rod comes out and it's time for correction. Hold on a second, Jesus. I didn't sign up for this. Oh, but you did. Right? Because those whom God loves, he corrects. He punishes. He causes to walk through valleys, the valley of the shadow of death even, because he loves us. So many times the lie in culture today is that uh, he couldn't possibly love me if he's making me go through this. Lie. It's because he loves you that he makes you go through it. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. It doesn't mean that suffering doesn't hurt. It does. That's the point. But it should be pointing us to a life beyond this one. Right? This is from our scripture that Miss Janet read today. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with 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 which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffered. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our suffering, so also you are sharers of our comfort. I love how Paul weaves this together, like I said at the beginning, because we love to take our little scissors out and cut off all the suffering parts, right? Blessed be the God of all comfort, and he will comfort us and comfort and comfort and comfort. And we love that. 
But ladies and gentlemen, God will not comfort you so you are comfortable. Well, God, my, my sleep number bed is a little low. Could you pump it up for me? I need to get a little more comfortable. That's not how he works. He comforts you because you are afflicted. We have a dangerous gospel out there that teaches you can have comfort without the cross. But ladies and gentlemen, I am here to tell you, and I pray that this is the Holy Spirit, because I think it is, because it's biblical. <laughs> you cannot be comforted by God if you don't pick up your cross and follow him. There is no getting around the cross in Christianity, right? Jesus says, take heart that the world hates you because it hated me first. The world hated Jesus and crucified him. Why do we expect that we're going to get better from it, right? But we've got Christians walking around thinking, I can have worldly success in this hand and gospel over here, and I can balance it and walk this tightrope. And God says, no. And he will every time in your life. If that's where you're walking, if you're walking that tightrope right now, I promise you, ladies and gentlemen, I promise you, there is going to come a moment God is going to make you choose hands. He is going to push you to a moment, and it is going to look like death. It is going to smell like death. And he's going to make you choose. Do you want worldly success, or do you want me? Look what Paul says. Another great promise. 2 Corinthians 2, 14-17. But thanks be to God who always leads us in the triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. What kind of aroma are you? I'm afraid to say that far too many Christians have become obsessed with how they smell to the world, which is perishing. We should be far more concerned with what kind of aroma we are to God because he is eternal. We hit this in the Behold the Man series, right? Jesus with Pilate. Jesus isn't concerned whether or not Pilate believes him. Jesus doesn't fight for his truth. He doesn't scream out and say, I'm right and you're all wrong, suckers. He doesn't do it, right? God does not need you to peddle his word. He doesn't need you to try to sell the gospel to other people. We think that we're God's PR agents, right? We stay away from certain stories of the Bible. Oh, that doesn't make, look God, make God look good, so I'm, gonna, I'm not going to talk about that one. God doesn't need a PR agent. 
He needs you to live for him. And I promise you, if you live the gospel, if you live out the implications of the gospel, that aroma, people aren't going to be able to get away from it. To some people, you're going to smell like death. You stink, right? To those who are perishing, you will smell like death. They'll hate you for it. Some of you have walked through that. Whether it's family members, loved ones, friends. When they found out you're going all in for this gospel thing, you were ridiculed, you were poked at, you were made fun of. It's because you stink. You smell like death to them because you are a reminder of their eternal outcome, and they don't like that. But to God, you are an aroma of life. But to get there, we must walk in correction. I look back at my life and with my wife, Jana, and I look back at God's faithfulness. He has been so faithful. And I can say without question, looking back at my life, that I serve the God of all comfort. Because, guys, he has comforted me. He has comforted my wife and I through all sorts of stuff. But do you know why I know the God of comfort so well? Because I've walked through some junk. Right? I don't know he's the God of all comfort because life has been easy. I know it because it's been hard. Some of you know this, but uh, when Jan and I first got married, we were married for a little while, and we decided to, that we were going to have kids. And Jana really struggled in, in the beginning to get pregnant. And, you know, we went to some doctors and found out, you know, there was, there was some stuff going on. And, but through all of this, I read a passage of Scripture one Sunday in church, and, and I, I heard God speak so firmly, you will have children. This sorrow will pass, and you will have children. And then just a little while later, we got pregnant. Jana was pregnant. And so, you know, it's like, praise God. Like, he answered prayer, and, and that was a valley. But it's like, man, we walked through it, and the God of comfort came through. And then in October of that year, Jana started not to feel well and ended up having a miscarriage. And it was like a punch in the gut. It, it, the miscarriage hurt. That was hard. But I think more than that, it was the fact that we felt so sure that God had made this promise. And we're holding it, and then like sand, it just starts to slide through your fingers. And you try to squeeze it, and the harder you squeeze, the faster it falls. It's like, God, what the heck? What are you doing? And we went through a dark season. It was like a roller coaster. Like some mornings we'd wake up and it's like, come on, God can do this. God, you can do this. And then I don't even want to go to church today. What are we doing? If this is all that it gets us, what's the point of praying? What's the point of serving him? if it all ends in heartache anyway. And we went through seasons 
And then one day, we were sitting on our couch, and I will never forget this. I said, Jana, we can't do this anymore. We can't keep going back and forth and back and forth. Today, we draw a line in the sand, and we are either all in or we are all out. I am either never going to church again, or I am serving him every day of my life from here on out. Here I am, so you know what the answer was. (laughs) But we decided at that moment, I am going all in, and I don't care if God ever gives us a child. I don't care if God ever answers this prayer, I am all in, and I'm not in for the stuff. I'm in for him. And I wish I could tell you that we've been all in since then. Blaze of glory and nothing but fire. It's not how life works, right? It's up and down, and it ebbs and flows. Jana got pregnant again, had another miscarriage. But you know what? The line in the sand was there. And we said we are pressing on, and we are trusting him. We got pregnant again. She started bleeding. It's like, God, please not again. So we went in, had an ultrasound, and I will never forget, we walked in that room, and there was a song that came on the CD player by Sanctus Real called Jesus Keep My Heart Alive. And they put that little Doppler on her belly, and we heard the most beautiful heartbeat that you have ever heard in your life. And our son, Elam Nathaniel, is down there in kids' church right now. But ladies and gentlemen, there is nothing more powerful than a line in the sand. Because any time, that wasn't, I wish I could tell you that was the only time we ever struggled. That's not the only hard thing we ever walked through. We have walked through being stabbed in the back by friends. We have walked through being completely and utterly abandoned. We have walked through seasons where God is literally the only thing we have left. But you know what? The line is still there draw a line in the sand today. Tell God, God, I am in the middle of a valley. I am in the ringer right now and this hurts like crazy. But God, I'm going to put a line in the sand and I am going to run after you with everything that I am, with everything that I have, and I am going to trust that you are the God of all comfort no matter what comes. If we do that, I guarantee you the move of God that will happen through us, a people surrendered to him, will be something like this world hasn't seen since the Acts 2 church. Let's do it. The worship team's going to play through a song, and I think we just need to decide. You've got to decide. Am I going to draw that line, or am I going to keep jumping back and forth? Am I going to keep sitting on this fence? I would urge you, as one who has done it, draw the line. You will never be disappointed. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening to the Gospel House Podcast. We pray that you were pointed to Jesus and will apply what you learned to look more like Him each and every day. If you found today's message impactful, do us a favor and hit the follow button. Leave us a rating and write up a review to help others find our podcast. You can also help us by sharing the podcast so that together we can show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. 
If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Head to our website, www.thegospel.house connect. Fill out the form and someone from our Gospel House family will connect with you. God bless you and remember, the gospel of Jesus Christ is always enough.